bring my tea over. I'm losing my voice a bit here. So hopefully I'll make it through this. Uh, good to be with you again. If you're visiting, by the way, my name's Nate. I'm, uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Church. We're in a, a, this is a new building for us. We just moved in here in the beginning of September. So it's, uh, it's good to be uh, worshiping here with and even having some visitors uh, fill it up a little bit. And um, we're, we're studying the book of Genesis um, we're in Genesis chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you're, you, you're welcome to open and follow along with us, or the passage is printed for you in the bulletin. This is, uh, we're looking at Gen- Genesis chapters 1 through 11, which are kind of, they're fundamental chapters on how, as Christians, how do we view what the world is, what is it, you know, what is a human for, what, what are animals for, all that kind of, all those kind of basic questions of what is, what is the meaning of life, things like that. And so, uh, really fundamental questions I've been, I've been looking forward to. Uh, going through with you. So I'm looking forward to this series. Let me just uh, make a couple announcements before uh, we come to the text. Uh, first of all, um, uh, some of you have, uh, we're going to spend some time praying for Sean and Brittany, uh, who, uh, as some of you know, um, uh, Brittany was 20, 23 weeks pregnant, and um, uh, she went into labor. So I, I think uh, um, she went down to Skagit on last uh, Wednesday night and then was airlifted down to UW Medical Center. And um, she's been there, uh, and they've been trying to stop the labor um, as much as possible. So, so far over the last few days, uh, she's stopped contracting. Um, but this is still very early in the pregnancy, and so it's a really, um, you know, a dangerous situation. So uh, we're going to spend some time praying for her, and Trev's going to talk a little bit more about that, but I just appreciate all your prayers, and uh, for those of you who have emailed and uh, talked about trying to visit and things like that. Um, a couple announcements for the church. Uh, on October 9th, we are, uh, we're going to be having a work party uh, here to kind of get the building winterized as we come into the winter months. So uh, Saturday morning, October 9th, you can mark that on your calendar to come out, help us out, um, you know, pull some weeds, most lawn, maybe whatever, clean the gutters, whatever. Uh, we're looking for people to help us out with that. You'll hear more about it and sign-ups and things like that. And, um, and lastly, we're, I, I, we had a congregational meeting uh, last month about what we were going to do for Wednesday nights. We were going to have Wednesday night uh, every week. We're going to have a meal and some kind of teaching or prayer. Right now, um, I decided we're just going to halt on that. Um, I just, uh, I'd like to have us as a church, to have the freedom to just spend time with one another, have people over for meals, and I don't want to take up another night every week. So um, what we're going to do is right now we're just going to start with a monthly prayer night where we're going to have a meal or prayer. The first one will be the second. It'll be the second Wednesday of every month. So, and then we're, we'll see about a weekly thing, but right now um, I'd just, I just like to encourage you guys to, um, you know, if there are people in our congregation you don't know, have them over for dinner. Take that Wednesday night to uh, get to know some people and just have some fellowship and then um, probably in the next few months, we'll decide a little more clear uh, how we want to use our time. I just don't want to um, load our schedules with too many church events. So, um, so that's it for now. Um, let's uh, look at Genesis chapter 2. We're, <clears throat> we're just looking at verses 18 through 25. This is God's word. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever, man, uh, whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for this text, and uh, we pray that you would teach us about marriage and what marriage teaches us about you. I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would send your spirit to be our teacher, and uh, that you would use uh, even me, uh, in in my weakness, uh, a fallible teacher to bring your infallible word to your people. And uh, do this by your grace, and uh, would you look on us with pleasure and with love as we study your words now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as we're going to be talking today about marriage. This is a text about God giving a wife to the first man. And, um, you know, as, after I'd written this, a, a couple of things kind of occurred to me as I was looking back on the sermon. First of all, that um, I, there's a number of illustrations from my own marriage. And uh, so I'm, I'm just going to apologize for that beforehand. But, you know, looking at a text on marriage, that's really the experience I can speak out of. That's the tangible, uh, you know, evidence I have. So, uh, so you'll have to bear with me on hearing a little bit about Shannon and I. Um, some of you might want that. Um, the, uh, but secondly, uh, this, this passage is also a picture of marriage from before sin came into the world, before the, the fall came. And so it gives a, really a, a picture of marriage in its glory. And as anyone who's in marriage knows, marriage, if you've been married or are not married, or if you've been a family all of us, you know that marriage is complex, it's difficult, and that sin has made it a lot more complicated than this picture. But, what we're, but we're going to look at that in two weeks when we see marriage after the, after the sin comes into the world. But for now, we're looking at uh, marriage kind of in its glory. What, what did God intend it to be? What, what, what does God hope for marriage? And um, there's, a, there's a lot to say, so I'm really, I'm going to jump right into it. And we just have this... Uh, um, this, God's creation of marriage is kind of a fu- is fundamental to human existence. That, uh, that's basic to life. And I, what I want to point out is three things that marriage gives us, that God says marriage gives us from this passage. First of all, marriage gives us an opposite helper. So what I mean, you know, a helper that is opposite to us. I'll unpack what that means. Second, marriage gives us a naked friend. Uh, Shannon... Shannon thought that was a funny one when I told her that was my second point. A naked friend. And third, marriage gives us a passionate covenant. So we're going to look at those three things. And, and what we're going to do is unpack how really all of these, these aspects of marriage point us ultimately to Jesus. That uh, marriage uh, has, is pointing to something bigger than itself. So we're going to look at that at the end as well. So first, uh, the first thing is that marriage gives us an opposite helper. Now, this quality of biblical marriage uh, that God gives the man a helper is, is one of the, mo- probably the most controversial part of this, uh, of this passage. You know, it's, uh, uh, it says in verse, uh, verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and, so, uh, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. And of course, this, 
this passage has been kind of fodder for feminists. They say, oh, I see. That's, I'm, I'm the, the little helper. Isn't that cute? Um, I get to be the helper for the man. And, uh, you know, it's like sa- he's Santa Claus, and I'm, I'm one of the little, the little helpers running around. Isn't that cute? Isn't that cute? I really feel validated. You know, that's how insulting. Well, uh, probably um, what's happening is we're just taking a word helper and, and injecting into it whatever that means to us. But the Bible has a pretty clear usage of that word helper. Because if you look, read through the Bible, and you find out who is the main referent for that word helper, you'll find out it's God, right? You know, Psalm 121, I set my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? It comes from you, O Lord, maker of heaven and earth. So the idea that helper means, you know, tag along, you know, second best, uh, not as important, anything like that. It can't be, because God is the main helper in the Bible. So uh, what does it mean? Um, uh, oh, one other thing, uh, actually, that word helper comes, uh, the, 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 the root word for the word helper, the verb that's used, is actually to, um, to save, um, to deliver from death, to save from danger. That's what a helper does, is, is saves from danger. So what that means is that... Um, the reason the man needs a helper is, because, is not because he's so strong and he gets to be in, he's so independent and doesn't need anything. It's because there's a deficiency, a weakness in the man that he needs the strength of his wife uh, to save him from. And, uh, you know, and I think many men know, you know that kind of need for a wife. If you, if you just observe when couples get older and uh, if if the, uh, the husband dies first, usually the wife does pretty well on her own. You know, my grandma, my grandpa died at least 10 years ago. She's 95. I mean, obviously it was difficult for her, but she's pretty unfazed. She's just independent, can handle it. When, they, when the wife dies first, a lot of times the guy comes, dies pretty quick after. <laughs> he can't keep going, or, or he gets married pretty quickly after. There's this sense of need that they can't, they have a, a neediness and a weakness that they need, that they need their wife for. And uh, so what is this weakness? Well, I, I, was, look, I was listening to an interview this week uh, by a, a gal named Carol Gilligan. She's a feminist uh, psychologist who, who wrote a book in the 80s called In a Different Voice, which is about uh, moral maturity in men and women, how men and women are, are different. That's one of the things that she points out in uh, she was telling a story about when she was teaching a, a course uh, in the maybe late 60s at Harvard, um, and, and she wanted to talk to her students about the Vietnam War. And she found that, uh, men, that the students really clammed up. They didn't want to talk about the war, and especially the young men didn't want to talk about the war. And uh, the reason was because the war and the decisions that they were having to make about getting involved in the war or whatever they were going to do were deeply impacting the relationships around them, the relationships they cared about, but they didn't know how to talk about that. They didn't know how to talk about their relationships. And um, the reason for that is because for men, men's God-given instinct is not towards building relationships, towards attachment. That's not their, their first instinct. Their first instinct is towards independence, towards I need, to, I need to get out there. I need to, I need to make something. i got to create something. i got to do something new. I need to accomplish something. I need to, I need to use my hands. I need to do something. And there's a, a, that's their first instinct. That's their, their, their natural thing to do. And, what the, uh, and, and in fact, that's how men judge themselves. 
men judge themselves on base, what have I done? What have I accomplished? Um, what have I conquered? What have I made? What can I, what can I say for myself? That, now, let me make this clear. That doesn't mean that men don't care about relationships. <laughs> Look at the, the old guys who, when their wife dies, are crippled. Men care deeply about relationships. It's just not their first thing. It's not their gift. And, uh, and so what a man needs is a wife who, uh, and this is what Carol Gilligan points out, is that the wife's first instinct, that her first voice or thing that she's aiming at is attachment, is relationships. And a husband needs a wife who is going to say, hey, we need to talk. We need to spend time together. We need to connect. Or, and even to, to provide a relational constant into the relationship. You know, I, about four and a half years ago, I was, a, I was a graduate student down at the University of Washington, and we, uh, she and I had two kids. We, uh, we lived about uh, a half a mile from Shannon's parents. I, was on my, I had a plan to be a math professor. I was going to be a math professor. And uh, we lived across the lawn from two of our best friends, and uh, my parents lived in town, and, and everything was kind of on track and going smoothly until I said, I think the Lord's calling me to plant a church. <laughs> I need to go to St. Louis for three years and, uh, and go to seminary, and then I need to plant a church. And uh, what that is, is I need, to, I need to break away. I need to be independent. I need to make something. I need to do something. And what that, uh, you know, and there was support, but there was also resistance. You know, I mean, people aren't happy with just ripping apart this, this, this plan. And so, uh, you know, we have two kids, we have two young kids, and we're going to go into seminary, and church planning is not the most stable profession that you could ever choose. And, uh, um, but what Shannon did, as I'm, as, as I'm breaking apart all these relationships, me making an impact, me doing something, me doing what God's called me to do, was going to break apart relationships. It was going to unsettle things. And Shannon came and she said, you know what, I'm with you. I'm behind you. You've got to go do this. Let's go, let's, go to, let's go to St. Louis. I'm not going anywhere. And what she is, is she was, she was devoted to the attachment. That's what I need. It's not that I don't need relationships. It's not that I don't want relationships. But my first instinct is towards making an impact. It's towards, it's towards independence. And uh, so the first instinct of the husband is towards... Uh, let me see what I'm saying here. Hold on. I want to get this right. So uh, the first instinct is towards impact. And her first instinct is towards relationships. And they need each other. Because he wants... The, the thing is that guy, the man wants relationships just as much as a girl wants relationships. We want relationships. We want to be intimate. We want to be close to people. But that's not our first thing. And so we need them. And you know what? She wants to make an impact just as much as, as we do. We, she wants to have uh, significance and get out in the world and create something just as much as we do. And so we need each other, so we're opposite helpers. And that's what, that's what God says. It was not good for man to be alone, so I'm going to create, uh, it says I'm, I'm going to create a, a helper fit for him. But really, the language is, I'm going I'm to make a, a helper as opposite to him, who's opposite. They're different. Now, one of the things that's going to happen is whenever in a marriage, this, these central tender things of, of a man's kind of calling a vocation and woman's relationships, these are tender areas of our lives. I mean, these are probably the most sensitive areas of a man and a woman's life are these two areas. And we're going to be interacting on that level. And so that kind of leads us into the second thing that a marriage gives us is not just, uh, not just an opposite helper, but a naked friend. 
And um, you see that in this passage, uh, it gives this kind of amazing um, uh, penetrating summary, summary of what a healthy marriage looks like. Look at, the, look at the closing verse, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is kind of the ultimate picture of what God intended for marriage, a picture of marriage. Of course, you know, on, on the surface, this is the Bible affirming the sexual relationship, that sex is good, it's a blessing from God, it's to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage, and that God wants us to enjoy that. that, that that's a gift from God. But um, even more than that, marriage is the one relationship in which we are more n- naked in every part of our life with this other person than in a- any other relationship. That in marriage, our spouse has access to certain parts of our life that no one else has access to. And, uh, you know, whether it's kind of our, our heart, our psyche, how we act, our, our sins... Um, you know, how we deal with stress, whatever, whatever it is, the, all the hidden things. You know, we walk around, we kind of have clothes with everyone else. We wear clothes with everyone else, and there are certain parts of us that are hidden. There are certain parts we show and certain parts that we don't show. And yet in the marriage, in that close quarters, in that intimacy, uh, our lives are bare naked. All, all parts of our lives are bare naked with one another. And what this access gives us is a tremendous amount of power in our spouse's life, a tremendous amount of power, both to hurt and uh, to redeem. You know, I, I've shared with you that uh, when I was in high school, I, I got sent away as a 16-year-old for a year and a half to a boys' program in, on a little island called Western Samoa for a year and a half. It was kind of a rehab boarding school boot camp place. And I came back, and I went back to my old high school, and, you know, I, I'd been with all boys in Samoa for a year and a half, and I just did not know how to operate in a high school. And so, you know, I came back to high school, and I, I hardly talked. I mean, I was silent, shy, uh, and people would say, what's wrong with him? Why, why doesn't he talk? He got sent away. He's so awkward. And, uh, and, and you know, actually, and, and then, you know, I started dating Shannon, and, uh, you know, Shannon was obviously way, way out of my league, and, and she went to a different high school, and I'd go hang out with her friends, and I, I'd kind of stand there and not say anything awkward. And, um, and, you know, obviously this is something that I was very insecure about. And, um, and as it went on, as our relationship went on, Shannon married the awkward guy, the mysterious weird guy who doesn't talk. Shannon married him. And, uh, and, you know, that part of my life that, that's obviously sensitive to me was very open to her. And uh, she, had, she had access to that. Now, what would that have done if she said, why, why can't you just be normal around people? You know, they're just people, just talk, you know, just, uh, why can't you be that? What would that have done? I'd be like, okay, uh, you know, that wouldn't have helped me. But you know what, I'll tell you, to her, you know, she's not here, but she, to her credit, she has told me again and again when I say, gosh, I don't know how to be around people, I'm awkward, she says, no, you're not. I know you better than anyone. You know, yeah, you don't jump all over people right when you meet them and stuff like that, but I, I think people like that. I, you're good with people. You're, you're, you're social. You know, uh, I like being around you. I, I, I'm around you more than anyone else. I like it. And, and she, she's consistently told me that for 10 years. And I, that, that's changed me. That, that, that's had a re- redeeming power. And, and she's had access to a naked part of my life that no, that no one else has access to. And she has a power to speak into it like no one else has. And uh, that's one of the gifts of marriage. And what is she doing when she does that? She's taking 
that naked life, and she's putting me at ease. She's, she's letting me be comfortable with who I really am. She's, and that's, that's the image here, is that you have Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed. They were at ease with one another. They were at ease exactly how they are. It was no problem. They, they were unashamed. And, and uh, what God gives us in marriage uh, is that kind of intimacy again and that kind of power uh, to put us at ease in that way. Now, uh, for many of us, um, there's another... Earlier, you know, when we're children, uh, we, are, you know, we're kind of naked with our parents. You know, they change our diapers, and they're, you know, they're, our, our whole lives are open to them. And it, it has a similar kind of, uh, you know, vulnerability. And for many of us, uh, you know, maybe we, psych, modern psychology will say that much of who we are has been formed in the first five years of our life. What happened in our first five years? Maybe we're hurt. Maybe things happened in those first five years. When people had access to that naked life. And a lot of modern psychologists will say, you know what, you need to get down into what happened in your first five years if you've been damaged, and you need to unlearn that. You need to, uh, but really all you can do is rely on yourself. You need to get into what you've, uh, how you've been wounded, and how that's affecting your life, and how that's shaping you, and you need, you need, you don't have anyone else. You've got to work on it. And the Bible is not so naive that you can even do that. What the Bible says is that we have, God gives us marriage. God gives us another person. I mean, this is, this is what it says. Look at what it says in verse, uh, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So he'll leave his first family, the first relationship he was naked in, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And uh, marriage is a new, it's a, new pl- it's a new family. It's a new start. It's a new place to have a, a, a naked self. It's a new opportunity for someone to have access into that relationship and reform and reshape, redefine. That's the redeeming power of a marriage. That's what God gives us in a marriage. Now, one of the things that goes along with that is, uh, you know, someone might say, okay, I understand that, you know, but on the one hand, it's very, there are a lot of people who are physically naked together, but, uh, you know, emotionally... Relationally, there's no nakedness. That, that's not a guarantee in marriage that that's going to happen, that there's that kind of intimacy. Well, what do you say about that? Well, um, because exposing our lives to one another is such a sensitive thing, it's important that we know that the other person's not going to run out on us. So this leads to the third part of a marriage that this text uh, opens up for us, is a passionate covenant. Now, um, the Bible's understanding of what a marriage is, is it's a relationship that's founded on promises, on vows that say, I'm never going to leave you. I'm with you no matter what. Through thick and thin. And in fact, uh, you know, Adam has this song where he, where he praises his, the wife that God's given to him. In verse 23, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So on the one hand, he's kind of saying, oh, finally, a helper that kind of matches me. But, but really, in the Bible, flesh is the weak part of your body, right? If you die, the flesh deteriorates, and your bones are kind of the sturdy, you know, hard part of your body. And so in some ways, what Adam is saying is, is this at last, this is someone who's, who's with me, both in my weakness and in my strength. At last, someone who, who, who's intimate with me, both in my weakness and my strength. It's, like, it's very close to what we say in our marriage vows, when we say, you know, for better or worse, for sickness or health, uh, richer or poorer. That, that's essentially what he's saying. In my, in, my, in my flesh and in my bones, you, you are one with me. And uh, it's a covenant. But probably uh, the, the, the 
And the most clear place that this passage shows us that marriage is about a covenant is in verse 24. Look at what it says. And the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, in the Old Testament, um, the, the word there for hold, ta- for hold fast has really two meanings. It means either infatuation or it means like permanence or, or really like a covenant faithfulness. So, so, for example, there's this tragic story in, later on in Genesis where uh, um, uh, Shechem, who's a son of a neighboring king, falls in love with, with one of uh, Jacob's daughters. And it says that, uh, that his, and his soul held fast to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Jacob, he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So on the one hand, there's this sense of infatuation, which holding fast, his soul was like grabbed onto her, stuck to her. He couldn't let go of her. On the other hand, holding fast, the word that's used there for holding fast is, is used for a covenant faithfulness. So Israel, you know, God had made a covenant with them. He'd given them laws and said, you know, don't serve any other gods. Worship me alone. And, uh, and so what... Uh, the Bible says, hold fast onto your God. Hold fast to him. Be faithful to him. Don't let go of him. So it's this kind of permanence. And so these are two things that are really very different to us because in our culture, generally we would say, uh, you know, infatuation when young people fall in love, you know, it's, it's very fleeting and there's no permanence to it and it's going to come and it's going. And yet um, covenant faithfulness permanence has this, this opposite. Um, you know, I'm not leaving you no matter what. And um, as it turns out, I think these two things go together more than we might think. Uh, to, to use Shannon and I again as an illustration, that uh, when we when we first started dating, we had uh, um, she, it was about three days before she went to college over Washington State, and uh, so we started dating. She goes to Washington State. I come to Western. We're you know, six hours apart, and there was this big discussion about okay, is this realistic? We're gonna we're just starting college. Should we do this long-distance relationship? We have four years ahead of us where we're going to be a part. Is this really a good idea? And so we're having all these conversations over those first few weeks. And, uh, and one night, I said, all right, we're talking on the phone. I said, okay, I'm going to go for a run. Let's just both pray about it, see what the Lord says, and, and we'll get back together and we'll talk about it. So I go for my run, and I come to one of those uh, art pieces up on Western's campus that you can climb on and crawl in. So I... I go into the, the art piece, and I lie down in it. It's kind of a clear night. Stars are out. And Shannon would be embarrassed if she heard me tell you a story. Um, the, uh, and it's a clear night, and I'm praying. I'm like, Lord, don't, I don't want this to end with Shannon. You know, make this work out. And so I said, okay, God, I'm, if you want Shannon and I to stay together, I really said this, if you want me to stay together, I want to see a shooting star <laughs> right now. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not leaving. I, I, I want to see a shooting star. That's how, I, I need, need you to show me. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to be here all night, like, lying on this concrete thing. And literally, I, I'm, not, I'm not lying. Five minutes later, the giant shooting star you ever saw went across the sky. And, uh, and I run home, and I call her. And I'm like, okay, I got to tell you what happened. You know, I saw the shooting star. And she's like, I saw the same star. You know? <laughs> I saw the same Actually, my dad, my dad claims he saw the star too. So, uh, you know, but as it goes on, you know, two months later, we're, you know, we're 19 and, oh, I want to, let's get married. We're, we were planning a honeymoon. We're starting college. And, you know, even as it goes on, I have, I have these friends that I ended up living with in college. And, and I was telling them in my sophomore year of college, I said, hey, you know, I'm going to propose to Shannon. And they were like, what? Propo- you're, gonna, you're a sophomore. Like, ah, no, you 
you can't do that. How do you know? You know, this is your whole life. What are you doing? And, and uh, what's interesting, though, is that um, when young people fall in love and they have an infatuation and say, I want to be with you forever, let's, let's, let's spend our life together. Now, listen, I'm not saying that every young person who falls in love should just go marry the person. It's, it, it's more complicated than that. But, but before the fall, that is what God intended. The Bible takes those, you know, G.K. Chesterton says that marriage is, uh, is so romantic because it's irrevocable. It, it's, it's, like, it's like sending an email. You know, you send an email and you push send, it's gone, and you can't take it back. That, that's how marriage is. It's romantic, it's a risk, it's reckless. And, uh, and the Bible takes that recklessness of young people in love and takes it very seriously. It's, and when they start saying, I want to be with you forever, the Bible says, all right, let's have a wedding. I'm not, I'm not kidding. And it's not, you're not always going to feel up, uh, up in, uh, in magical and, and kissy and in love, but I'm going to take you at your word that that's what you were made for. It's a promise that says, I'm, I'm with you no matter what. And uh, I think that this promise of that I'm with you no matter what, you know, um, I will never leave you, is really what Paul has in mind. And when, when Paul, the Apostle Paul talks about marriage and he says the things like, you know, wives, submit to your husbands, uh, defer to him, uh, follow his leadership, believe in his leadership, wives, uh, defer to him, or, or husbands, love your wives, speak kindly to them, uh, listen to them, uh, be gentle to them. What, what Paul is saying is that the way that we interpret those things is we hear our spouse saying, I'm never going to leave you. So that when a wife says, says to her husband, I believe in you, and when Shannon says, I'm, uh, I, yeah, you should do this. this is, you should go to St. Louis. What she, how I interpret that is she's saying, I'm never going to leave you. And when a husband listens to his wife and says, I, I, you know, let's have a date. How's your day? Uh, let's connect relationally. And the way when she's feeling loved by him, how she interprets that is a reaffirmation of the marriage covenant, that I'm never going to leave you. And that's what a marriage needs. That's how, if we're going to be naked together, that's what we need, is we need to know that again and again, that you're never going to leave me. And uh, one of my favorite illustrations is there's a movie that came out a few years ago called Cinderella Man um, with Russell Crowe. It's about, it's a true story about a boxer in New Jersey uh, during the Depression uh, named James Braddock. And he, uh, the story is about his. He has no job. His, they can't pay their electric bill for his kids, and, his, and you know they're living in a cellar, and uh, they can't get food. And so, fi- and he's a retired boxer. And so, finally, one of his friends says, "Hey, I can get you this fight. Uh, you can make 200 bucks. You know, you'll probably get killed, but it'll get you some money." So he says, "Okay, I got to do it. I got to take care of my family." So he gets in there and he takes the guy down, and you're like, "Oh, all right, you know." And, and the story goes, he's an underdog every every fight, and he finally, he's beaten everyone. He gets to the title fight. And there's, uh, in the title fight, he's going to be boxing this guy named Max Bear, who's killed two people in previous fights. And uh, and obviously his wife's like, you're not doing this. He's killed two people. You cannot do this fight. But, But now he's become famous. You know, everyone's hopeless in the depression, and here's this guy who's boxing, winning money for his family, you know, underdog. And he says, I got to do it. I got I to gotta go fight this guy. I can't back out now I'm at the title fight. And she's like, I refuse. I, I cannot support this. And so uh, she, she won't watch it. She won't talk to him. And, and the night of the fight, he's in the, um, 
he's in the, uh, you know, getting wrapped up by his tra trainer, and uh, they hear a knock on the door, and there's his wife, and uh, she comes in, the trainer leaves him alone, and, you know, she's been saying, I, I'm not, I don't support this fight, I don't support you doing this. She comes in, and she says, you can't win without me behind you. Maybe I, maybe I know something of what, uh, you know, what it is to have to fight. So you just remember who you are. You're the, you're the bulldog of Bergen. You're the, uh, you know, the, you're the uh, pride of New Jersey. You're everybody's hope. You're your kid's hero, and you're the champion of my heart. Right? And that's, that's what he has going into the fight, is respect. I believe in you. I'm behind you. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm deferring to you. I'm with you. And what he hears that is, is that's what he needs. That's what he needs to have strength to go into the world. Of course, he goes, what does he do? Takes down Mac Bear, Max Bear, you know. And, uh, and the great story, and, and that's what that is, is that respect, that, that um, wives respecting their husbands and husbands loving their wives, what we're saying to one another is again and again, I'm never going to leave you. What I said on the wedding day, what I said when we fell in love, and, uh, and yeah, I always want to be with you, I'm in love with you, that, was, that wasn't a joke. And... Um, But I think one thing that's important to notice in this story is that uh, she gives him the respect before the fight. He needs the respect uh, before the fight. Because uh, some of us are going to say, um, you know, okay, I, I love my wife. What if my wife's not lovable? What if, she's, what if she's a nag or she's a cantankerous? Or what if my husband's not respectable? What, how am I going to do that? And the thing is... Uh, that, that what the, the world tells us is that you love someone because they're lovely. Uh, you know, you praise someone because they're beautiful. You accept, uh, you accept someone because they're acceptable. The gospel tells us the exact opposite. The gospel says that while we were still sinners, Jesus gave his life for the ungodly that he might buy us back to God and pour, he pours all of his love, he seals his love on us, he chooses us, he calls us beloved when we didn't deserve it, full of sin, turned our back on God, we didn't even care about God, he pours his love on us, and then we become lovely. Then we become uh, something that's worth praising and, and valuing. The love comes first. That's the inversion of the gospel. And, um, and marriage is the same way. We thank God for our wives. We love them. We speak kindly to them. We serve them. We listen to them. Uh, even, even, when they're, even if we feel like they're nagging us. Even if uh, we feel like we want to run out of the house and, and go do something by ourselves. We love them first. And what, and what the Bible says is that they become radiant. And, and when your husband is, I don't know how I can respect him. How can, I, how can I let him be a leader in my family? How can I follow him? You do it first. And he becomes a leader. He becomes respectable. And, uh, and some of you might say, you know, what, okay, what if, what, if I, what if I follow my husband's leadership? And what if he walks all over me? Why, why should I take that risk? Or why, what if I love my wife and she takes advantage of it? Why should I take that risk? And the answer is that when we look at the gospel and we look at Jesus going to the cross for all of our sin, did he know that we would have all our sins forgiven, and then we go and disobey God and say, well, I know I shouldn't do this, but Jesus will forgive me, so I'll do it. He knew that we would do that. He knew that we would take advantage of him, and he still did it. He said that we were worth the risk. 
your, your wife, your husband, is worth the risk. And so what this tells us is that, um, that marriage is actually about, not just about the relationship between a man and a woman, it's about something much bigger. Marriage is something that points us to the gospel. It points us to the God who created the world and who's redeeming the world. It's a picture for us. You know, it's actually uh, one of the things that's interesting about the Bible. The Bible's written over a 1,500-year period. And uh, Moses wrote uh, the first book of the Bible, Genesis. John, the Apostle John uh, wrote 1,500 years later the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And yet uh, the la- first three chapters of the Bible and the last few chapters of the Bible have many things in common. So, for example, you'll see uh, in the f- early chapters um, uh, there's a river um, in, uh, in Eden and there's the tree of life there. And in the end of Revelation, there's the tree of life and uh, in, in the beginning, there's the serpent that comes and tries to uh, deceive Adam's bride. And in the end, there's the dragon that comes and uh, tries to deceive uh, the second Adam's bride, uh, Jesus, his bride, the church, and tries to, to, to destroy the church. And, uh, and in the beginning, you have a marriage. That's what we're looking at here, is a marriage, a wedding between Adam and Eve. And in the end, you have a wedding between Christ and his bride, the church. And uh, what that says is that marriage is a good thing, but marriage is not the ultimate thing. And what that means is that for some of you, you might be here and you're, maybe you're not married, uh, or maybe you've had a marriage that's failed. And you say, oh, here's this, here's this beautiful picture of, of uh, Genesis and what marriage is supposed to be, all these things of a naked friend and opposite, and all these things... But the point is, that's a good thing, and it's, that's a trial to not have that. But the thing is, that's not even close to the ultimate thing. The best marriage in the world, all at, at its very best, is simply pointing to a deeper union between God and between the people that he's redeeming, which is, far, is a far deeper closure. Far, uh, you know, even the people who have the best marriage in the world, they'll tell you that this marriage is not enough to justify my existence. It's not enough to satisfy my existence. I need something more. And... Uh, and what the Bible says is that uh, there is a, a bigger marriage happening when Christ and the people that he has bought with his blood, that he has loved, the bride that he has bought with his blood will be united. Because you look at the Bible. Who's, who's the helper in the Bible? Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. You know, my strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, I'll pray to my Father and I'll send him a helper, the Spirit, to you. Jesus is the helper. Who's... Who's the one that frees us, puts us at ease with our naked self? Who does that? Well, the Bible says that uh, uh, no creature is hidden from the, the sight of God, um, and, all, um, and all are naked and exposed uh, before his sight and, and must give an account to him. And so Jesus, who knows that we're naked, clo- washes us, closes us, calls us his beloved, and he says, anyone who comes to me I will in no way cast out. And who makes a, who makes a passionate covenant to us? Who says, I will, I, will, oh, I will be with you no matter what? What does Jesus say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm bound myself to you. Jesus is now, Jesus is in heaven, and he's looking at us, those who he's redeemed, this church, this small church, and he's passionate about it. He's praying for us. He's leading us. He's listening to us like a good husband. He's helping us, like a, even like a good wife. <laughs> you know? that Even though we are uh, the, the, the bride of, uh, of Christ... He is all things to us. And what that means is there's coming a day that all the things, all those desires that we have, I long for that kind of intimacy in a marriage. I long for that kind of union. 
Those good desires, you only get a taste of them in the best marriage. But in knowing Jesus, in knowing our Creator, all those things are satisfied. And so would God make our marriages to just be signposts pointing to the marriage of Christ and His bride? Let's pray together. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, and we do thank you for the gift of marriage. And we pray that you would give us the grace um, to love, uh, love our spouses. And even more, that um, these longings for intimacy that we have, that they would give us a deeper longing for the marriage supper of the Lamb that will come when Jesus comes to his bride. And uh, give us hope um, and set our hope on him um, that we might taste of that goodness. And so we just thank you for your grace and for your word. Apply it to our lives now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.